This is Let's Go Michigan with Jeff Sloan on 760 WJR. Your bird's eye view on Michigan's business and entertainment scene. Here's Jeff. All right, welcome to Let's Go Michigan. Kristen, Mark here co-hosting the show with me as always. Good to be with you guys on this great Michigan weekend. Kicking off our show, as we always do, just some interesting stories in the news we want to feature and recap a little bit, maybe put a little perspective on some of them. The first of those, did you guys hear, I just really am feeling bad for this guy, Elon Musk, no longer the richest man in the world as of this past week. Poor guy. Who beat him out? Well, there's a gentleman by the name of him. He's the new number one richest person in the world, Frenchman Bernard Arnault of luxury conglomerate LVMH. This news was announced midweek this past week. This really happened on the heels of a Delaware judge voiding a hefty package of performance-based Tesla options that were to be awarded to Musk. He's not getting those, and because he's not getting those, He now sits at $184.5 billion in net worth and holds the number two position when it comes to the wealthiest people in the world. For reference, Arnold's estimated net worth, $210.8 billion, now at number one. Of course, the third richest person remains Jeff Bezos at $179 billion. Do you think they're friends? Do you think they sit around and talk about how much money they have? I think they lose track. Here's, I think so too. here's the problem with keeping track of it. Can you imagine yeah. how much money that money earns every minute of right. every day? Those fortunes are escalating at paces that we can't even imagine. Right. More money in that minute likely than most of us will earn in a yeah. lifetime. I like to think they're friends because it's lonely at the top. Listen, the interesting thing is that these are competitive guys by nature. I mean, you don't get to be there and somehow justify the sacrifices they've had to make. Right in order to get there. Now, you know, a lot of good luck, a lot of good timing, a lot of being in the right place at the right time certainly are factors in all of this, especially when it comes to the extreme wealth that they've generated. But nonetheless, they've obviously been exemplary entrepreneurs, tops in the world. These are the guys. I mean, there's others too. Certainly we have a few local guys that have done pretty well. I would say so. And to Kristen's point, I wouldn't mind being lonely for a while. (laughs) You'd you'd pay the price, Mark? Absolutely. Mark, there's still time. Well, listen, speaking of Elon Musk, here's an interesting one for you. Also in the news this week, he seems to always be in the news. Mm -hmm. Elon Musk, Taylor Swift, you just can't escape it. Donald Trump. Donald. uh, I know. Well, Donald Trump, indeed. All right, well, look, Elon Musk's, one of his companies is named Neuralink. And you guys may have caught the story of Neuralink before in that they were testing really a system that they're building to allow a real, true man-machine interface where they implant a device into a, it was, monkey's brains that they were testing into a monkey, linking it to the brain, and then allowing there to be a link between the brain and its ability to have thoughts, to drive various actions and so on. This interface allows for basically the brain to control Devices just through the brain's thoughts. By having a thought, you can make something take an action. So here's news for you. This week, Neuralink has announced that they've actually now implanted one of the devices into a human. And that human being is reportedly recovering well. And here's what Musk had to say. I don't know. I might have said, oh, God, I'm so happy that Mm -hmm. the person is doing well, well, surviving this. I mean, can you imagine? Musk's comment was... Uh, The results are promising. (laughs) 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> there are neuron spike detections going on, which is exactly what we wanted to see. And so congratulations to Alon. There's still hope. He's going to be the richest person in the world once again, yeah. once uh, this rolls out into the greater, broader public. I wonder why he didn't volunteer himself. Well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I feel like he'd be... I mean, that's a natural. Right. I mean, it's his yes. idea, his invention. Yes. I think the government wouldn't allow it because those thoughts that he has in that brain, <laughs> we, we do not want to empower yeah. necessarily any more than they already are. Of course, that all kidding aside, he's an amazing right. guy with an you know, amazing brain. But nonetheless, he wanted to be generous and allow someone else to be the first. There you go. All right. I don't know about you guys, but I'm always stimulated by, fascinated by, and I just love people who love solving great mysteries. One of the great mysteries, maybe, has been solved. Maybe. That mystery, how about the whereabouts of Amelia Earhart's airplane? They may have found it in 16,000 feet of water in the Pacific Ocean. That's a story that we just can't leave. We just right. need to know what happened to her. It's such a mystery. She took off with Fred Noonan, her navigator, and the two of them, frankly, just disappeared. But nonetheless, we've been searching since her disappearance to try to find answers to what happened to them. There's all kinds of different ideas and hypotheses on what actually did happen. But now, the discovery of an airplane by a gentleman by the name of Anthony Romeo. He's the CEO of Deep Sea Vision. He's a former Air Force intelligence officer. And he may, may, we don't know for sure yet, we'll know relatively soon, hopefully, when they send down a device to actually look at it. Nonetheless, on a radar screen, they picked up what appears to be an airplane just about the size of Earhart's plane resting on the bottom of the ocean, 16,000 feet down in the Pacific. Interesting stuff. I can't believe that, one, they're able to detect that, and also that there's any kind of shape left. Well, when you think about a plane crashing, especially that type of plane during that Okay, time, that's interesting. Well, it I depends, I think, on obviously how it crashed. If it right, maybe skimmed right. the There's surface and then factors. just filled with water right. and went yeah, down, that's one not. thing. Right. Uh, you're right. A lot of times a plane hits the water, breaks up like hitting concrete. Well, one thing is sure. If you've seen the image, I did take a look at the image. It's interesting to see. You can find it everywhere online. It does look like an airplane. There's no doubt about it. It looks like a small craft on the bottom of the ocean. It is about the same size of the airplane that she flew in. There's some debate about the shape of the wings to actually be the type of plane that she was in. But maybe those wings, to your point, got, you know, pushed back on its way down to the bottom of the ocean. Mm -hmm. All right. In other news, quickly, Universal Music Group. Did you hear this story? They have pulled music from the TikTok platform because there's a big feud going on right now between TikTok and Universal Music and that apparently... TikTok hasn't done what it's supposed to with respect to its rights obligations to Universal Music Group, the largest, by the way, music company in the world. They hold the rights to artists like Taylor Swift and Drake and so on. And so they are now literally pulling music Good. from the TikTok platform. All right. right. I like that. There you go. Here's another story, Mark, that you would like right up your alley. Do you know what now is the most officially the most successful, the biggest song ever? In American music history, that is defined by the song that has been the most commercially successful, sold the most songs when songs were actually selling, or in today's world, streaming the most. You add that all up, do some comparison. The Recording Industry Association of America has just announced that Don't Stop Believin' wow. is the most successful commercial song of all time. How about that? 
All right, and it's got ties to Detroit. I think that song was actually written by Steve Perry when he was here in Detroit at a concert. He was staying at a hotel, as I recall. I hope I have that right. And uh, he wrote that song, and he does mention Detroit right in the song. What a great song, by the way. What a great song. One of a kind. All right, listen, we've got some really cool stuff coming up on the rest of the show. Stick with us here. Coming up, here's a couple of stories we'll be featuring on the show. One relates to the success of ski resorts in the state of Michigan, something really near and dear to all of our hearts here as Michiganders. They're having great years, record profits. And listen to this, the Lions' success, their run through the playoffs, is it leading to all of us making a little more money? How does that work? Hmm, pretty interesting. We're about to find out. An industry here that's near and dear to us for a couple of reasons here in the state of Michigan. One reason why it's near and dear to us is because it provides great recreation to those of us who love to participate in this particular sport or recreation, however you want to say it. And that is skiing in the winter. And Kristen, you found an article we want to feature now that really underscores the economics of ski resorts and the fact that they're actually bringing in some record numbers. That's right. We're going to have Mark Dent on with us. He's a reporter for The Hustle, and he's talking to us about how the ski resorts across the United States are raking in profits. Yeah, indeed. He published his article, Powder and Profits, the Economics of Ski Resorts. Mark's always great to have on our show. We appreciate him very much. Does such a great job reporting on a wide range of subject matter. Mark, this is a time when even in spite of global warming and climate change and all the rest, Skiing is really hot these days, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Mark, you just published an article, and you point out that the snow business, the skiing business in particular, snowboarding and skiing, is anything but chill these days. Record numbers of revenues, record numbers of skiers, and all the rest. Tee it up for us. Tell us what's going on, and maybe give us at a high level to kick this off. What's driving the change? Yeah, so last year, during like the last ski season, there was around 65 million skier and snowboarder visits at American resorts. There are nearly 12 million total skiers, and, and both of these were records. You know, there's more people who are skiing than ever in the U.S. And there's a couple kind of main reasons for this. And, and the first one being like these two corporations have really started to dominate the industry. And secondly, those two corporations introduced season passes. And that has really just changed how everything works in skiing these days. I want to just jump in here a second. Because my family skis, Jeff, your family skis, the season pass is a huge incentive for us as a family to ski. But also the fact that now resorts are becoming more than just a ski hill. They're becoming Mm. just that. They're becoming resorts. So they're beefing up their accommodations, their bars, their restaurants, all the rest of the activities that you can do when you go to these resorts. So I feel like you're right. I can absolutely see how the number of skiers and snowboarders has quadrupled. One resort owner described like his resort to me as like a little city. They have restaurants, they have childcare in the form of ski lessons, I suppose, but nevertheless, and hotels. Some of the really big resorts, obviously, they, they own not only hotels, they own condos. And so it's like places where people actually live. So it is, they're really like, they're kind of their own like little ecosystem of their own. And I think you're right, like in in the sense, there's so much more people going, which has has become really good for like the operators of those resorts. The, The interesting thing though, where I mentioned these two big corporations who own 
between them, it's, it's Vail Resorts and mm -hmm. Altera Mountain Company. Between them, they own around 60 ski resorts uh, or just under 60, I think. And they've kind of really changed uh, the way some of these mountain towns are in ways that are good and bad, right? You know, it's technically good for the local economy to have these big crowds, but there's also a little bit of overcrowding. And they've also had the general kind of corporate efficiencies where they've had job losses in a lot of these mountain towns too. So record number means about 12 million people total go skiing in a year, which is just a fraction of the U.S. population. But it has a huge impact on uh, certain places. Yeah, I mean, for those of us who live here in Michigan, for example, and we've got the Boyne Resort organization that I think is the third largest, actually. So they must be uh, seeing some of the same benefit from the season ski passes and all the rest that's driving the increased interest in skiing and activity in skiing and the numbers and the revenues and all the rest. Listen, uh, it's really important to us here in the state of Michigan. Now, I mentioned global warming. There were a couple of weeks, Kristen, two or three, where we had some snow. But I got to tell you, global warming is a factor. What are you hearing from the ski industry about its impact? And again, in spite of whatever that impact is, still record numbers. What are you learning about the impact of global warming, Mark? Well, from what I've heard from, from most people is that they're not all that concerned about it yet. I mean, they're well aware that climate change is happening and that things probably will change. But right now, people I talked to in Colorado and on the East Coast, you know, they were just kind of like, you know, we're getting around the same level of snow as we have for the last many years, for the last decades. In some ways, maybe it comes, you know, at different times or maybe it'll be a really heavy amount of snow. And certainly there's like a little bit more rain on the East Coast, which is the worst that you can ask for because people don't want to go skiing in that. So yeah, I mean, snowmaking has definitely become a lot more important but it's been important for a while because if, if you don't have enough snow, you know, you can't be open and you can't make money. Now that said, we're talking about season passes here that you mentioned. That has kind of changed things around to where you still need to put on a good product. Right. You have a lot of snow. But because so many of these ski resorts are selling season passes at the beginning of the year. They collect the revenue regardless, right? For that year. Yeah, they make money before the mountain opens, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, so Vail Resorts really kind of popularized these. They weren't the first to do it. In Colorado, there was this resort called Winter Park that started to just do a season pass only at Winter Park in the late 90s. And then it kind of took off from there, where you had in the late 2000s, Vail Resorts, which was starting to buy all these resorts, said, okay, just pay like a few hundred dollars. That's all it was back then. And this was in like, you know, 2007, 2008. You could pay 500 plus dollars and you'd be able to visit five resorts as often as you wanted. And it was immensely popular that first year. I mean, it, it sold, I believe, tens of thousands of passes. But it, it's become so much more popular. Vail now has close to 40 resorts. So their pass means that you can go to any of them as often as you want. You know, they have ones all over the world now. Right. And so in 2023, for last year's ski season, or rather for this year's ski season, they sold 2.4 million season passes, which accounts for around $900 million in sales. And that's the vast majority of the money that they make off of tickets, if you will. And what it's done is that it's allowed them also for people who want to buy individual tickets, they've really raised the rates on those because it's just kind of seen as like you need to buy that season yeah. pass yeah. or if not for the full season, some kind of pass. Yeah. Right. They've outpriced the day pass skier. I mean, a day pass at some of these places are 100, 200, 300, $400 right. just for a day pass. That's insane. And that forces you into the season pass. Right. How is this affecting the independent ski resorts? This is, I think, to me, like the, the most interesting and most surprising thing about the entire ski industry. Independent resorts are actually kind of happy with Vail Resorts and with Altera Mountain Company. They have this outsized influence 
which you would think could be worrisome for independent resorts. That's how it, how it works in a lot of industries. But I was, for instance, talking to this one ski resort owner who has East Berkshire, which is like a longtime resort in Massachusetts that's been in his family for, you know, around 60 years. And he told me that before Vail Resorts started buying up different resorts in New England, that there was like a, another owner that had a bunch of resorts and they were kind of like small time version of Vail. And that was worrisome because they were still kind of being a little bit local while also having like this incredible buying power. But once Vail Resorts came in, they just started to play this entirely different game to where they didn't really care about these group discounts or cheap midweek tickets or anything like that, which are how like independent resorts stand out. And so it's really given independent resorts actually a lot of breathing room because what they do is so much different from what Vail Resorts does and from what Altera Mountain Company does. And so Basically, you have millions, because it is a lot of people who want to go to Vail Resort Mountains or Altera Mountains, millions of people. Just to put in perspective real quick, we mentioned 2.4 million season passes. Remember, only around 11 to 12 million skiers in the right. U.S. So one out of every five, give or take, buys that pass. So anyway, but they all go to the Vail Mountains and the Vail Resort Mountains, they get pretty crowded. And uh, a lot of people don't like the big crowds. Mm -hmm. So then they go to these independent mountains and the independent mountains, they also have their own pass called the Indie Pass, which has proved very popular. So they've seen record revenues, record skiers over the last five years, and they're doing very well. Mark, let me ask you this. You mentioned the pass as being a major factor as to why there's increased interest in and activity in uh, skiing and snowboarding. What about just more people coming into the population as skiing enthusiasts? Is that general population of skiers and snowboarders growing these days? Is it becoming more popular? Yeah. In terms of, like I was saying, that aggregate number of skiers around 12 million or so total in the U.S., that, that's a record number and it's up from about 10 million from 15 years ago. And those people are skiing more often. There's no doubt about that. I mean, people I've talked to in Colorado had kind of told me that it's like in the past, you know, maybe your ski weekend would start on Friday and you'd leave on Sunday or, or maybe you'd even just go on Saturday. Now it's like, you go on Friday and then you ski all day Friday, all day Saturday and all day Sunday, or maybe even come on Thursday to beat the traffic. Because right. again, a lot of these mountains are getting pretty crowded is kind of like the downside to all this popularity. And earlier, Kristen, you were talking about how there's all these amenities at these resorts. So when the, you have the season passes with people who want to come on Thursday instead of Friday or Friday instead of Saturday, that just gives them an extra day to go to the restaurant, That's right. to go to the bar. And, and so that allows them to make a little more revenue. That said, these season passes, another really interesting thing, in my opinion, is that if you look at like Vail Resorts, which is a publicly traded company, so you can look at their revenues. In 2016, when season passes were still very popular, there was about a million sold, I think, that year. So like lift ticket revenue, i.e. money actually spent on skiing, was about 41% of Vail Resorts' total revenue, and, and the other 60% came from all those other amenities. Right. You know, last year, the ticket revenue was up to 49%, and it was at 52% before that. So in some ways, even though people are going to like these restaurants and stuff more often just because they're at the mountain for longer, those season passes are still actually more important than all that other stuff, which is kind of different than what you see in a lot of similar industries and frankly, what the ski industry used to be. I want to know more about why the popularity has grown. Do we have any research indicate, you know, what's behind maybe this growth in popularity in skiing? I mean, a lot of it from some of the ski resort owners I talked to has to do with the pandemic. I mean, what doesn't for anything happening in business still? 
There was obviously in 2020, when everything shut down, there's a lot of pent up demand still from that, where, where people just want to do stuff. But also during the pandemic year, in 2021 in particular, people were starting to do more activities, but they want to do them outside. And yeah. so skiing was kind of a natural fit for that. Sure. And then yet again, another kind of pandemic trend, which is that like people who lived in San Francisco might've moved to Denver or they might've moved to like Jackson Hole, Wyoming, or, you know, something like that to get away from the bigger city. And I think that has also had a tremendous yeah. impact on, on the ski industry, just because there's more people who are closer to these satellite type of communities where these ski resorts usually are. Yeah, this is encouraging and great news for our ski resorts here in the state of Michigan and for those of us who love skiing. Mark Dent, thank you very much for being on and giving us the overview on increased activity, revenues, et cetera, in the skiing industry. We appreciate it, Mark. Yeah, thank you. All right. Thanks, Mark Dent. Listen, does anybody do it better than that? We do have a guy coming on next in our segment on Let's Go Michigan that does it just as well. He's bringing us an interesting story, something I certainly didn't know about of how the Lions, the spillover effect of the Detroit Lions' great run through the playoffs makes us all so happy, happy enough to be more productive at work, and that can lead to increased earnings. That, of course, leads to economic impact in our region. Really? Amazingly? Yes, it's true. So much to be thankful for, happy for, joyous about, exuberant over with respect to the Lions finally Doing something, Mark. Pretty exciting, yeah. Mark, you, you seem to be walking on air. Even though the season didn't end with the Lions maybe making it to the ultimate goal, making it into the Super Bowl, we came just a few minutes away right. from that becoming a reality. Nonetheless, when you look back on it, more to come. That's a good thing. Next year's teed up to be a really exciting season. And a really interesting thing, Kristen, you found an article for us and have a guest coming on the show that is highly relevant to the fact that guys like Mark Pastore are walking on air right now and can't wait till kickoff 2024 for the Detroit Lions. And that is that a lot of us are familiar with the economic positive spillover effect that happens for various merchants, dining establishments, bar owners, hotels, et cetera, in the region where money gets spent when your team does well, makes it into the playoffs, has those extra games, and all of that mania and excitement and joy that leads to spending related to those games. But now... There's information that even when you feel more joy, you tend to be more productive at work. There might even be an economic benefit there as well. I just read an article published in Cranes Detroit about that exact theory that our happiness could in fact be lining our pockets, all thanks to the Detroit Lions' success this season. Now that's got a ring to it. And actually yeah. you were able to get us an interview yeah. with the guy who published that article, Dustin Walsh, senior reporter for Cranes Detroit. He's got the story for us. Could the idea that we could actually earn more money as a result of Detroit Lions success be a reality? Uh, sort of. <laughs> Obviously, we heard a lot about what the home playoff games meant for the city of Detroit and for the region writ large. I believe it was 20 million to 50 million were sort of the numbers thrown around about having you know people come downtown and those spillover effects. But uh, the reality is having a winning 
NFL franchise has slight marginal spillover economic effects for per capita income for the entire region is really what it is. And, and it sort of boils down to psychology. So the idea is that when you have a winning football team, people tend to be a little happier. And when they're happier, <laughs> yes. they tend to be more productive at work. And when you're more productive at work, you tend to get paid better. And so, you know, some economists studied this data. And, you know, this is all loose economic theory. There are simply yep. just too many variables to take into account. But the idea is pretty simple that, you know, happy workers mean more money. And, and so really, it averages out to about 120 extra dollars in your pocket per year, which, again, is pretty marginal. But, you know, it's not nothing. And so that was sort of the idea is what kind of economic take can we look at this winning season that we've had after having so many not winning seasons? Yeah, indeed. And now this is interesting because... I think we can all agree that a winning football team brings Michiganders downtown. Of course, the games sell out. They make a stop for lunch before the game or drinks after the game. Again, depending on the outcome of the game, either to drown their sorrows or to celebrate victory, whatever it may be. We kind of know all about that. But I think what you're really getting at is that there is some effect as well on actual earning by local regional residents here who work in the area earn more. That's the essential difference you're pointing out here, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, there's so many things that impact per capita income and just a lot of studies that are done over the years on different ways people basically become productive. And happiness is one of them. You know, um, that's why so you see so many workplace psychology studies on how do we create a happier workforce? How do we make them more productive by meeting their needs? Um, you know, I'm a millennial, so I sort of ushered in that generation of we, our generation ushered in that sort of mindset. Right. And so we're sort of seeing that play out in the fact that everyone was really excited. I mean, if you went to Ford Field this year for a game or you were at any of the playoff games, it felt like a much different experience than going to the games in the past. You know, some of the games in the past, people were, were drunk and angry. And this year was there was a lot more singing and high fives and it, it felt more jovial, you know, and that doesn't just end when the fourth quarter ends. It continues on throughout the week. And, and so you're sort of seeing those rollover effects of people having pride in their football team. Personally, I know there's a lot of people that pulled out their cricket and they started a little side business and started producing Lions merchandise just on the side because they know it was a hot commodity. So not only mm -hmm. were they happy, but they were also lining their pockets in another way because they knew merch was hard to find. And so people were promoting their own little side business of Lions merchandise, which it's great to see. And you're right, there is a happiness spillover effect because they felt confident that they could do this. And this is something that they also loved and they just started pushing out merchandise. Yeah, and it keeps the money in the local economy. You know, I mean, I think a lot of people when we talk about this sort of spillover, economic spillover effects, they think of, you know, bars, restaurants and merch sales. And generally speaking, I mean, great for those local people going to Dick's Sporting Goods and, and buying up the hats and sweatshirts doesn't really keep the money necessarily local in the economy. Sure, it keeps people employed, but it's beyond that, right? It's, it's being a good worker, even if you're just, you know, working at the Ford Rouge plant or, you know, you're an accountant somewhere in Southfield. Those things that have literally nothing to do with football are also seeing the benefits of that happiness spillover, we call it, I guess. Yeah. And just another reason to root for the local team. And of course, this doesn't only relate to the Lions winning, although we've just gone through that period that's most relevant right now with the Lions success during the football season. But presumably the same can be expected should the Pistons or the Tigers or the Red Wings go on a run and other local college teams. We know what University of Michigan did this year, for example, all those things have an impact. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, it's going to be different for each different franchise, right? I mean, NFL happens to be the largest of the big four sports and the Lions have been. I mean, we all remember the 2008-0-16 season. 
you know, the lines have, you know, historically not achieved these heights. And so the spillover effects are going to be a little greater, a little more emphasized because of that. The Red Wings winning, yeah, that's great, but we've had a few Stanley Cups. When I was an eight-year-old through 10 years old, when the bad boys were winning, I was there for those championships. And yeah, those all have spillover effects economically, but they're all going to be a little different. And I think the Lions season this year was probably the greatest. And, and we don't want to forget that these sort of deteriorate over time, right? If you're in Boston and you were a New England's Patriots fan and had over a dozen years of just a great team, so well, the economic spillover effects are going to be a little less because you're going to be a little apathetic to the winning seasons or just used to it, right? So it's a little more special emotionally and economically here in Detroit. Absolutely. The novelty of finally winning and winning big, being part of it all, it's a powerful thing. And I do get, I think that's a strong point you made at the end. It's almost like damned if you do, damned if you don't. On the one hand, we want the Lions to be contenders every single year. From an economic standpoint, that spillover effect, though, declines as the sort of that extreme nature of what we all experienced this year with the Lions, the exuberance, the extreme joy. Right, Kristen? Absolutely. Yeah, that kind of decays a bit. So what we want here. We want a winner. We want to be mm-hmm. in the mix. We just don't want it every year. We don't want to get used to it here well, in Detroit. God forbid. <laughs> God yeah. forbid yeah. <laughs> that we get used to it. Right. I will gladly not take the extra income for a solid decade run of the Detroit Lions being contenders. <laughs> Dustin, so, yeah. I'm um, with you all yeah. the way. I agree. I'm with yeah. you all the way. Great. All right. Well, thanks so much. Dustin Walsh, senior reporter at CranesDetroit.com, enlightening us on the various ways the Lions season this year made us all happier and therefore as a result made our region better at least a little bit for each of us individually from an economic and financial standpoint. All right, Dustin, thank you. Hey, thank you. Big announcement yesterday, of course, coming out of Pennsylvania, Groundhog Day. I think most of you have probably heard by now. Just want to make sure that we all know what it means. Remind us again, Kristen, he saw a shadow? He did not see a shadow. So therefore we have an early spring. So there's no more six weeks of winter kind of thing going on. Correct. Okay. I actually looked up his accuracy rate. Oh. He's only been right 30% of the time over the past 10 years. Oh, that's really interesting. Mm. Only 30% of the time? Kind of like the weather. I was just going to say, now we know that, especially here in Michigan, what is that old saying about Michigan weather? Wait five minutes and it'll it'll change. It'll change from winter to spring Mm -hmm. in a a moment's notice. The thing is, though, speaking of our weather— It's been tricky to forecast because lots of change. Now, I don't necessarily want to get into, is it global warming? Is it this, is that? But I'll tell you one thing. I remember growing up as a kid right here in Michigan, and there was a lot of snow in the winter. We made snow tunnels when, you know, the stuff got shoveled up and put into a pile when they used to do our driveway and all the rest. There was a lot of snow. I just don't see that happening these days. Now you look at our February weather here for the state of Michigan, predicting warmer than average temperatures throughout February. I mean, we've been experiencing over the last couple of weeks some of that coming off that polar vortex we had a couple of weeks ago and it was really cold and we got some snow. But now it's in the high 30s, 40s. Yeah, that's what they predict for the first half of February. It's supposed to be 40s and 50s. I don't know. It's strange. I mean, not that long ago, I think it was 2014 and 2019, we did experience like a true polar vortex where it was the month of January was negative 23 or whatever it was for a whole month. But now the warm weather, the lack of precipitation, where we just did a segment earlier in the show about the ski resorts and how they're killing it. They're killing it because of these passes and everything. But eventually if people can't go and get, get on snow. And the thing about it is this, 
the ski resorts, as long as it gets below 32, they can make snow. Now, right. Of course, it's more costly to the ski resort than having it come out of the heavens right. uh, like they'd rather have it happen. But nonetheless, they can still stay in business. But if you can't make snow, if it's 40 degrees, I don't care about season pass or no season pass. Ultimately, there's going to come a judgment day here and people are going to say, I'm not spending my money on that because yeah. I get in two days of skiing a winter here in Michigan and so on. So this is an interesting issue. Last year, of course, was the warmest year on record ever. So something's going on. Yeah. Would you rather have cold or would you rather have precipitation, meaning snow? I don't like it when it gets below zero. Yeah, just cold and it's no just, snow. It's just miserable. So I would say... Snow. I'd rather have snow. Yeah, but, me but too. I, but I don't want to have snow at the expense of having to have below zero temperatures. Right. So, yeah, you know, and sometimes you can't have it both ways. But I'll take high 20s and snow. Yeah. There I'm go. putting in my order. Does that work for you guys? Yeah. Nonetheless, racing towards spring here, racing towards summer. We love that here in the state of Michigan, but we love our winters too. All right. Now, moving on from our weather and, and our Punxsutawney Phil, who's now proven not to be very good at predicting the weather, um, <laughs> let's turn our attention to something I think we've probably all dealt with from time to time, and that is the issue of etiquette at work. There was a very interesting article about what some companies are doing from an HR standpoint, to actually help their people on their teams not only pursue better etiquette, but actually become more charming, Yeah. right? There's charm school. They're sending people to charm school, and they're doing it because not only does it create a better work environment, their teams are happier, their people are happier, but it actually increases productivity when you've got team members that are happier and when they're not focused on things like, oh my God, Joe just went in the kitchen, made his lunch, got splattered all over the inside of the microwave. There's a dirty dish in the sink and I'm coming here. Now it's my turn to make my lunch. You know, that is a huge pet peeve of mine at oh, our office. Oh, she's got signs all over the kitchen. <laughs> Your mom does not work here. So what do you think, guys? I mean, what do we think about this idea of, first of all, the impact of people just simply being more charming for the sake of having a better business. I don't mind it at all. I think that remote working, we've lost our sense of etiquette and common decency, common decency respect, yeah. and that all kind of went out the window. Well, now businesses are requiring people to come back in the office. Well, we're behind. We don't have soft skills. You didn't need a soft skill on a Zoom call. So now you're with people. So you should be able to know how to shake somebody's hand. Exactly. Imagine you that. You should know. I right. mean, right. right? It's really back to square one, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. Uh, these are basic skills are basics, and yeah. it's kind of embarrassing. Mm. But in the article that we found in the LA Times, six in 10 companies are going to be sending their employees to etiquette class. That's amazing. In this year, 2024. So that speaks to the need. I mean, for Absolutely. six and 10 companies to be sending people to etiquette school, charm school. Uh, I mean, Mark, you're always charming. Uh, that are, This article, of course, uh -oh. uh, written by Samantha Masanaga, a staff writer for the LA Times, because it's really interesting and enlightening and kind of a wake-up call to the fact that, as you say, Kristen, six and 10 companies sending people, it really speaks to the need, right? I mean, this is really becoming a, a major issue. I have a question. Yeah. Jeff, you're the boss here mm -hmm. at this office. Now, would you send everybody as a collective or would you single out people to go to etiquette school? In other words, do you make a statement to certain people by saying, well, you're getting sent, you're not? You know, that's a very interesting point. I think my gut reaction is it's probably best to have the team collectively be trained in how to be more charming, how to follow the rules of etiquette within the office and so on as opposed to calling out individual people and sending them and thereby making a statement to them and to the coworkers that 
these people have, they're marked. They <laughs> yeah, have bad, bad behavior. That's Interesting. right. The article does go on to say that some of the training that goes on in these etiquette classes, they talk about how to give proper feedback, proper dress code, how to remember names, how to conduct yourself during a business lunch. I mean, you can send me, I'll go. I think those are great things to kind of just refresh our memory well, on the how record, to do Kristen, that. Yeah, for, the for, the, for the record, Mark would be the one to go. Uh-huh, thank <laughs> you. Kristen, you've got it down. Uh, you're fine. Mark, I know. No, no. All kidding aside, I'm fortunate, actually. This is something I haven't thought about. We're fortunate to have just charming people on the team that really understand the importance of it, common sense. Mm-hmm. But this does make me think about my kids, your kids, Pretty soon. Yes, they're in high school. They're going to be in college, but they're going to be in a job soon enough. And it makes me think, oh, gosh, I should probably start talking to them about having good business etiquette. I think my kids are fine, but when you're in a job, it's different. It is a different environment. Of course, there are bigger issues here, serious issues with respect to etiquette and protocol and what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. We know all of that. But, you know, you raise another good point, and that is that many of us enter the workforce really I can't imagine a worse place to come out of with respect to etiquette that is out of a dorm somewhere from college or something. There is no such thing as etiquette. And then they go out into the workforce. It's a really good point. I mean, I think we should not assume that people just generally get it from an etiquette standpoint or how to be charming, how to be gracious, how to be just decent and to have common courtesies and so on. Very good point. Well, charm schools are doing well, schools that teach etiquette are doing really, really well when six and 10 companies are sending their people for this kind of training. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us here today on Let's Go Michigan. And in closing, I would like to say it's been a real pleasure (laughs) (laughs) having you both on the show with me today. It's been lovely. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for co-hosting the show with me. And thank you to all of you out there, also charming as well, for joining and tuning into our show. We love having you here with us, and we look forward to being back here again next Saturday right here on Let's Go Michigan. You can find more by our host, Jeff Sloan, on thegreatvoice.com, live on WJR Radio, 760 AM, and anywhere you listen to podcasts.